All right, we are recording. Yeah. Is it 10 seconds for us to just settle? Welcome everyone to Are You Gonna Stay, a podcast from me, Laura Hemingway, where I interview New Yorkers and ask them the question of the show, are you gonna stay? Today I have with me Jess Davis, actor, designer, model, community organizer, advocate, activist, all around badass. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you for the introduction. I appreciate it. And it's awesome to be here in your new venture. So thanks for including me. Thank you. This is the inaugural episode. You are my first show. <gasps> premiere guest. Yes. Yeah, my premiere guest. <laughs> Super thank you. Of course. Yeah. No, this is awesome. I, I love that everybody has really... It feels like now we're in the time where everyone's like getting away from status quo. So it's like, I can do what I thought I couldn't do or like, you know, what didn't seem like it fit in my life. It's like everyone's kind of releasing all of these preconceived notions about what is and what it's supposed to be. So I'm happy to be a part of that process. Absolutely. This is super new for me. I have no yeah. idea what I'm doing, but I figure like, why not? I, I love yeah. how you encapsulated that far more than I just did. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, That's good. so Jess, uh, New Yorker transplant. Yes, I'm from California originally, Oakland, California. So I got to ask, are you going to stay? Yeah, I'm going to stay. <laughs> I, I, I've always really like kind of battled with the idea, not because of what's happening currently, but just at some point I would like to go back to California because I do find it to be my, my home and my heart. Um, but I've always felt this sense of, I hate using this term because it's such a colonizer term, but the sense of conquering New York <laughs> and like really taking hold of it and not being defeated by it. Like I know a lot of people are overwhelmed by how New York's presence can just kind of swallow you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be in that group of people that just felt defeated by it. And, you know, um, and I think this is kind of, this, this is kind of part of that, you know, the whole process with the pandemic and COVID um, is part of this whole being defeated by New York, because I mean, I think New York has handled this in a completely different way, you know, um, and then, I think that can be really hard for people too, because it's such an intense time we're living in and we have to, we have to handle this in a very intense way. And we're in New York, which is a very intense place. So it's just super heightened for everybody right now. Um, but I want to stay because I just, I had this idea that I would live in New York for like very many, many years. So I never really saw something forcing me out unless it was like, Oh, well, you just got your dream job. You're shooting with like a great director and you're in Paris for three months. Like, of course I'll leave, you know, <laughs> but that circumstance has not presented itself at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to stay here. 
I love how definitive your answer was like, yeah, like, of course I will. And the question mm -hmm. of the show is like, it is more relevant now today because of the pandemic, because of the mass exodus, <clears throat> people are rethinking, do I want to live in a city at all? What does a city mean? Am I going to work remotely forever now? Um, yeah. But it's a question like as an actor that you ask yourselves all the time, you ask yourself all the time because there's always LA. Yes, there's always LA. I think LA for me, it's just, the reason I came to New York was it made more sense logistically if we can get to the the technicalities or the, the technical part of like moving and living is like, it felt more feasible as an actor who is on the the go and it's like your first time pursuing it. You know, like this is like the first time you're pursuing this in a professional way. You're not, ha you don't have a lot of money you don't have a lot of connections. Um, and LA seems like that place where, you know, you got to have a car, you have to have money for gas and upkeep of a car, a place to live. And it's also super expensive there, you know? Um, so I felt like New York was like more accessible. Like I can get on the train and go to an audition. Yeah. You know, I don't have to fight through traffic in order to get to an audition. You know, um, it felt just like logistically more, made more sense. And also I grew up in California. So it's like moving to LA just didn't seem like this grand gesture to me. Yeah. Whereas like, wow. you know, and like I, I would, I mean, I have family in LA and I would travel there, but I also had family in New York when I was a kid, I would come to New York for, um, from time to time. So I grew to love New York through that, that travel to see my family. Um, but also just it being so far away in a completely different world, you know? And I just, I like to experience different places and be in like new, you know, groups and social circles. It just, it just felt more enriching of, of an experience to move to New York. Um, also, we're so much better actors out here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's more talent here. <laughs> Um, you know, I think, and I, I just think it's just, there's so much that New York teaches you. I mean, LA teaches you things too, just in a different way and in a different scope. You know, I think that as much as, you know, I don't want to be elitist, but I, I do think there's a lot of talent in New York mm -hmm. and a lot of the talent that we see in LA came from New York. Um, so I think New York teaches you and hones you and hardens you to a point where you, you don't have to be a complete dick, but you you develop the thick skin in order to stand up for yourself and have that resilience. And then when you get to LA, there's a lot of respect that comes from that resilience that you've built up. Mm -hmm. And so LA teaches you to maintain it, I think, whereas New York teaches you how to have it. So it's like this nice like transition. Um, so they, they both have validity in the teaching uh, spectrum, but just in different different places so mm -hmm. I would definitely like sum that up from my experience to work ethic people in LA mm -hmm. are shocked at the work ethic of New Yorkers and we just can't <laughs> rest like we yeah, we're just rely on and yeah. rest on our laurels mm -hmm. yeah we're just go 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 all the time and you know like I have to, like as much as I've been here for eight years so a lot of people are like, oh, you're a New Yorker. But some people would be like, where are you from? You're clearly not a New Yorker. Just because I have a very relaxed way about me. And so it's like, it's clear that I'm not the typical neurotic <laughs> New Yorker. But 
I do have a similar work ethic to New Yorkers where I constantly need to be doing things and constantly need to be um, putting my energy toward different projects and I can't sit still. Um, and, you know, like California, I think is just so comfortable and laid back, which is another reason I left is because I felt like if I moved to LA, I could, I could see myself just drifting off on the beach every day. and just be like, eh, I don't need to go to an audition today. I could just, I could just get high on the beach and be fine. Um, but I, right. But I knew that that wasn't going to propel my career forward. Is that, that sense of comfort. I think that as much as I don't want to push like being uncomfortable, but I, I felt like being in New York is, it can be uncomfortable, but motivating. Um, and you can, you can work that dynamic in a healthy way and it doesn't have to be something that cripples you. You know, um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of like getting out of, uh, this whole idea that in order to feel comfortable, you have to go to toxic familiarity, which mm -hmm. is, I think a lot of what we do is just like, Oh, this is really familiar. Even though it's toxic, I'm familiar with it and it's comfortable. You know, it's like the devil, you know, but it's still, you know, a bad thing, but it's just so much comfort in that. Um, so I think even though there's that concept of moving away from that uncomfortability doesn't need to ultimately be a negative thing. You can put yourself in an uncomfortable space and then achieve comfort from that space by learning and growing. And I think that's what New York has been for me. Is New York ever the devil that you know? Um, it's really, it's, it's so funny because I have a really great relationship with Satan. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that is, I'll never top that comment. Okay. That's, that's oh. I'm done with this show. I can like, yes, on that. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. So you me, have me and Satan are like this. Um, I'm just like hail Satan all day. Uh, but it's, it's weird because I don't like to put things in the bad, good or bad place. It's always things just exist, right? So even though I say the devil you know, it's more like the thing that you know that might not be the most healthy for you. It doesn't have to be a devil because actually that thing that isn't the most healthy actually helped you learn something and was part of your growth process. So it's not a bad thing that that perceivably bad thing existed in your life because it helped you grow to a place where you are now more healthy and you have more knowledge. So I don't know. I never really put things in that like bad and good space because it, I think that really takes away from a lot of the value that we can learn from these, you know, undesired situations. Um, but they're, they're, they're super valuable in that they teach you things and we, we need to constantly be learning as humans. Otherwise we're stagnant and you have people like fucking Mitch McConnell um, <laughs> who just want to stay in the past and not progress, you know? So I think it's, it's great to just reflect on, on those tumultuous times and see them as your teacher. You know? How old were you when you moved to New York? And if you care to share, what were some of those first lessons? I was... So the thing about moving to New York was I, I felt really comfortable in California and I had decided to drop out of college and um, pursue a life in New York. Um, and the thing that was the catalyst to, or, or was the, what happened prior to my move was I went to, to uh, Europe for three months on my own 
didn't know anyone. I tr- kind of, ba- I backpacked pretty much, but with like a cute, like vintage suitcase. So it wasn't really like backpacking. Um, <laughs> I, ha- I went to the thrift store and found like, that's my case and it's cute. And it is going to break my back because I cannot carry this around. And it did. Um, <laughs> but it was an experience. And I, I think I wanted to have that experience because I felt so intimidated by New York. So I was like, you know what? If I go up to, to fucking Europe for three months by myself and I can figure that shit out and it's a completely different country, different language. I was in many countries that did not speak English. Um, as their first language. And, and I, I speak French. So I, I was like, I really had to get in on my French and, and put myself in a place where people probably weren't going to communicate with me. Um, and I think my having that experience, and I, I always tend to forget this, but I, I, that I did that, but I had that experience in a very singular space. I was just me moving around and figuring things out. And it, I took it as like the testing ground of like, this is what it's going to be like in New York. You're going to be alone. You're not, you don't speak New York language yet. Mm -hmm. So it's going to feel very off-putting. It's going to feel very like you can't find your place. Um, And so I did that trip. And then once I felt like, huh, this is great. This is fine. You know, I was like, all right, let's, let's move to New York. So I moved to New York and then, um, yeah, I think Europe taught me to really stand on my own and not be afraid. And then New York was like, yeah, that's what you need to do here. And so it just, it kind of further drew, drove that message of you need to stand on your own and you need to not apologize for doing so. You know, it's okay to ask for help, but understand that you don't have to fall into like a codependent you know, um, dynamic with anyone, like be it a job or another person, you know, I think codependency is something that is very rampant when you feel overwhelmed, especially in the city. So like people will be in relationships just to keep an apartment or just to feel like they're not alone because this city can feel so lonely. Um, but you're, then you're perpetuating a toxic behavior that doesn't move you forward you know, um, and that's pretty much fear based because you're like, I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being swallowed. So if I do something that might minimize that, even if it's toxic, I'll do it, you know? Um, and I, I found myself in that position. I, I got into a relationship for two years, uh, having moved here and it was not the best. It was an alcoholic. I didn't really know how to handle that at, at 23, uh, was when I met him and he was 30 and, I expected this person to just be like, oh, you're, you're a 30 year old man. You're going to teach me so much. And I'm just, I'm so mature for being, no, he was a child. Um, (laughs) We've all been there, right? Ladies, we've all been there. Oh yeah. You expect them to be fully formed. (laughs) Right. At at the big three O and it's like, nope. Cause I, I, I turned 31 this year and I'm still like, I feel prepubescent and a child. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like such a fucking infant. Um, but I know that I'm not. And my, my, my thought of being infantile is just rooted in the insecurity that I am not like where I want to be. You know, it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm 30 and I should have like this penthouse apartment like who the fuck no like in this economy and the things that we've had to experience back since from 9-11 to now 
you know, things have been really rocky for the millennial generation and then subsequently for Gen Z. So like these, these notions of like what it is to be an adult and stable, I think we're breaking them down because they also come from a place that's really rooted in our capitalist society where you have to have like the white picket fence and the husband and the kids and like this huge like ranch house in the middle of fucking nowhere. You know, like why do we, why are we idolizing that? And a lot of that is also rooted in like white supremacy structure and white power structure of like what it is to be a thriving American. Um, and so now that I've, especially since I've been, you know, really active in the Black Lives Matter movement as an organizer and when, and leading marches and protests, I've, really honed in on this like we need to break these systems like they're all oppressive to all of us and we don't need to adhere to this idea that this is how things should be you know we have we're at a really pivotal moment in time where we can make history and change how we move through life like uh, we don't need the nuclear family anymore not that we've ever really needed them but it's like that 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 structure that we thought we once needed was hasn't been serving us and we can get rid of it um so that's kind of like where i've been moving in new york now is really accepting like hey i don't really need this and i don't really need that and like fuck you <laughs> and you and you <laughs> you're cool <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, that's like New York has, cause really like empowered me in a lot of senses to just take ownership of the space that I hold mm -hmm. and not to make myself smaller. Um, especially with the black lives matter movement, it's like, don't make yourself smaller as a black woman, mm -hmm. you know, don't apologize for holding space or taking space. Um, and I think New York just empowers that motion, that notion, you know? Before I want, I want to ask you about your career and how you got started, but you mentioned mm -hmm. your work in activism and community organizing, and I would love for you to plug those uh, oh, yeah. organizations and the work that you're doing. Because I know you, oh. this is your second interview of the day, by the way, guys listening, this is just the second interview of the day. She's yes. already been going over this with another organization. I'm, I'm inviting her to do the same here on the podcast. Uh -huh. Please tell us about Brooklyn for Black Lives and for the... Oh, for the refrigerator. Yay! Uh, I, I lost the name, I should have written it No, down. it's okay, it's okay. We, it's, I, I will fill you in, I will fill you in. Thank you for that introduction. I appreciate you, Laura, so much. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so Black Lives Matter, the, the Black Lives Matter movement really empowered me in a lot of ways. And I met my co-founders through protesting. Um, we've, and I still protest under the group, uh, we don't have a name per se. We're kind of like the anonymous of the protesting groups. Okay. Um, but we met through that and then for, through protesting and organizing and leading marches through that, um, anonymous group, we formed Brooklyn for Black Lives back in November. So it's, we are very, very new. We're a month out. Um, and our first initiative um, was to put together a, a community fridge. Um, prior to this fridge, we had held space and done um, school drives for kids and youth events for kids. So we provided school um, supplies, um, had people donate money to us so that we can buy school supplies for um, for the youth of Brooklyn and brown, black and brown communities who are underserved in that regard. Um, so we decided, well, what's something else that our community needs, you know, in, in Brooklyn and just throughout New York, because there are, there are community fridges in Queens, in the Bronx, 
in Harlem um, and in, in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. So like it's it's not just Brooklyn that needs this, but it's everywhere. So but we realized that Brooklyn has the most black and brown population out of New York. And we wanted to focus our efforts in empowering those communities and, and making them feel safe and secure. And one of the ways to do that is through food security, um, because uh, food insecurity and lack of um, access to healthy food resources is so common. And it, it's something that has gone unacknowledged for a very long time in terms of actual um, solutions. And um, we wanted to to step in and do it and, and just like not rely on the government to, to step in because we've been asking the government for such a long time. So, um, yeah, Brooklyn for black lives is pretty much, we we're gearing, we, all of our efforts are in mutual aid work. So it's, um, very much providing the community with things that they haven't felt, um, you know, overall cared for in that sense. So, yeah, um, our initiative. I have, I'm sitting in front of a bunch of clothes because <laughs> I had a bunch of people donate um, when we uh, when we had our community fridge event. A lot of people brought um, clothes to donate for our clothing drive because we were promoting the clothing drive during that time. And so now I'm spent most of the day um, washing clothes that people have mm. have given. Yeah, I have a I've got a steamer here that I'm going to steam these clothes and I'm going to package them really nice and we're going to have our like nice little tent set up and we're going to have all these free clothes for people to come and get. Awesome. I'm going to follow up with you about that personally because I have so much that I can donate when it comes to clothes. Oh, please, because I, I we, like we really need like as much as anyone can give us. So I'm just like I put a bunch of bins in. Um, I live in downtown Brooklyn. I just I moved and I was like, yes, um, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, I, I live in a, and really the thing about downtown Brooklyn is like I live in, in, a, um, in an, a building where it's for actors and performers. Um, so I got like I won the lottery. Uh, and got that that actor housing, so I that's that's my situation. Um, so, yeah, right. I'm like super thankful. Um, but surrounding me are like these affluent white neighborhoods, like Cobble Hill and and Brooklyn Heights. Mm -hmm. So what I was thinking was, you know what? I'm gonna put donation bins in all of these really nice coffee shops and. Um, little bookshops mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask them to donate to black and brown communities mm -hmm. um, and, you know, see what happens. And so far it's been received pretty well. Um, you know, you just press the white guilt button and like they <laughs> just, they donate everything. Sorry, I'm <laughs> it works out already in this conversation. So you don't, yeah, you don't have to. Yeah, I, I do it in jest. I just, I feel like I have to say things like that so that people know that it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. You know, like it's okay for us to have these conversations because the reason that we're going through such an abusive time is because we have been neglecting having these conversations. And there's been like this fear of confronting race and we don't need to do that anymore like we're all humans we're all people that experience racism to some degree whether it's directly because we are a marginalized person or because we we know people that are in that circumstance who are who have experienced racism directly so there's indirect and direct 
relationship when it comes to race. Um, and I think we just need to talk about it. So, you know, me going out and putting these, these bins in, in these places, it kind of promotes that conversation too, in a way that's like, you know, you're a human and you recognize that this group of people have been oppressed and abused. What can you do to help? What can you do to make sure that we don't keep perpetuating this, this system? Of, of abuse, you know, and one way to do that is to just give and to listen. I think a lot of, a lot of people need to really just shut the fuck up and listen, mm-hmm. um, which is really hard to do because we get triggered and we get defensive or just like, oh no, that's not me. I didn't, I'm not racist. Um, but it, it's a true thing. I have my, um, my uh, racial biases, uh, biases and prejudices that I've had to unpack especially internalized racism based on how I grew up. And I, it was just a very, you know, just being inundated with a lot of white faces and white media and not seeing myself represented. And then thinking that that was the only way I could be of value is if I somehow tried to identify with the white community and, you know, replicated how the white community was. So I went through a lot of like identity crises as a kid and as an adult and just like a lot of internal struggle. Um, and I think one way to kind of combat this, like this, this very uncomfortableness that people find is to just be open and talk about it mm-hmm. um, and give people that knowledge. And it might sting in the beginning, like anything does, it's a growing pain. You have to go through that growing pain in order to grow. Um, so I tell people, like, I've gotten to, into so many conversations about, you know, uh, white supremacy, white power structure, and white privilege, mm-hmm. and I do get fit met with defensiveness, but I think it, it, it just takes a lot of time to work through that, and to you have to be patient, and sometimes I have the patience, and sometimes I don't, but <laughs> I try to be as level as I can with people, um, but me being uh, a part of our foundation that we founded is kind of like another way for me to keep having these conversations with people, you know, Um, because they can see like, oh, well, this is, this is helping the community and can I be involved, you know, and then that involvement sparks reflection, you know, because they'll see like how, how affected people are, you know, they'll see a community that is outside of their own. Um, and I think that really gets people to think and reflect and talk. So that's, that's all of that. <laughs> uh, prior to the, uh, <clears throat> that sparked this summer, how involved mm-hmm. are you in the Brooklyn community? And has, has that changed dramatically for you this year? Yeah, I really wasn't as, as vocal and as active in the Brooklyn community when it came to what I'm doing now. Like I, I wanted to be, um, involved but I didn't know how and I I made the excuse I don't know how to time and you know da, da, da. so I was I, I was like actively fighting it for a lot of other reasons too it was like more internalized racism I was like oh but if you do that you're too black and it's gonna scare all the white people that you have to work with in the industry mm-hmm. and it's just like that's that having to go work through that idea you know when you're work when you have a dream but you your dream has like all of this oppression wrapped in it you know, so I was just like, okay, great. Let's like, I've unpacked that and reflect on that. Um, 
but I did a lot of just singular activism that wasn't really based in Brooklyn. It was like, oh, I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood and I'm going to do women's initiatives um, because I felt like that was something everybody could relate to. And I was afraid of doing, you know, um, uh, particularly definable black activism because I thought people are going to be so off put by this. And like Black Lives Matter is just something that I believe in, but feel like I'm not going to get support. So, but I, then I just realized like, it doesn't matter. Like it was something I believed in and the support it does. I don't need to be supported in order to believe in something, mm-hmm. you know? So it took me a while to get to that place where I shed that like codependent belief of needing that, you know, validation through the support of people. You know, it was like, you know what, I'm going to be here with this and I'm going to be unapologetic about it. And I think, you know, back when um, the protests were at the height of their effectiveness and their influence, I felt so much power in myself to just take ownership of these are things that you have always felt and you felt you had to suppress them because society has always said, as a black woman, you should not be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, you should not be seen. And I was like, fuck that. Like, why do I need to live in that place anymore? And um, so I think it was it was this movement that really helped. And and then I found more of a reason to get into Brooklyn more and into those communities more because I lived in East New York and Brownsville area. And it's just horrible what you see from from the community because it's it's we're not cared for. You know, it's like, there's not a lot of trash cans. Um, so there's trash on the street, but if you go to the upper West side or the upper East side, there's a trash can on every corner. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I learned through protesting. One of the organizers, she would talk about that in her speeches. She'd be like, why, why is there such a gap in terms of the cleanliness and the care for certain communities? And it is dependent on race. It's, it's, a, it's seeing that part of society is not valuable. And so you don't need to care for them as the, in the same, in the same vein. Um, so it's like little things like that, or I was like, yeah, actually that's true. It's hard to find a trash can. You know, it's hard to find things that help the community feel like they're thriving and taken care of. So once I understood how much I was affected by that through living in East New York, moving out here and then being a part of the movement, I was like, all right, I want to go back to where I was, where I lived and was living through that and, and not, not ignore it. Just like, I'm going to go back and confront it and try to fix it, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's, I think that really sparked my wanting to really take care of Brooklyn more than what I had been previously. You have a really uh, <laughs> present social media uh, account. I don't know. I said that kind of weird. You have a, you have a really, <laughs> you have a really uh, big presence on social media, at least in my feed. I follow you. And really? you okay. really un- I would say an unapologetic feed. I love how much you put yourself out there. I love how you curate your page. I love how much you share. You do acting, you do modeling. You also do, you share knowledge. Mm-hmm. Has the fear of being vocal about your participation in the Black Lives Matter movement costing you jobs has that gone away or do you just not allow it to stop you 
it's so funny because I've had that in another conversation. I had I, I was met with that com that uh, question, and um, I would say the fact that I'm black costs me jobs. So prior to this movement, mm -hmm. you know, me being a black woman, I don't get certain roles. I don't get called in for certain things. So it kind of was like, well, fuck, what do I have to lose? You know, I'm not getting cost anyway because. Um, because I'm black, because that's not where people see um, someone like me in that role, you know? And so I was like, it, it doesn't matter. For me, I, I, I didn't see it as costing me anything because I wasn't getting anything before. Mm -hmm. If anything, this would help me get roles because I would be fighting for some sense of equity, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the industry that hasn't really doled out any for, for, any marginalized community, be it black or um, non-black POC. Mm -hmm. um, so it didn't feel like I was losing anything. If anything, it felt like, you know, I could potentially gain something from this. Um, and, and it could be a, a revolutionary moment for the industry to finally understand that it needs to change. So, yeah, that's... That's how I felt. <laughs> it's like I don't have I didn't have a job before and I'm probably not gonna have a job now. So what's the difference? <laughs> right? Everybody's unemployed. <laughs> I think credentials. You do have TV appearances on Orange is the New Black, Russian mm -hmm. Doll, The Punisher. Yes. You've been on Netflix, uh, the Eliza Schlesinger show. I'll never say yeah. that name, right? I know I can't say her name either, but she she is lovely. And you've done a myriad of independent films. Yes. How is the acting process going now? How are auditions going? Are you out? On, are you going places? Are you self-taping? Um, what's what's your, what's your experience of the industry shift been? So right now, it's been just pretty much self-tapes. Pretty much self-tapes. Um, I haven't gone to a physical audition since. I, I want to say prior to the pandemic, like it was, it was back in March or, or even, even February of last year where I was actually in an audition room with a casting director. Um, so it, it definitely has transitioned to more virtual representation of, of a, of a casting, you know, room. Um, but yeah, I mean, acting, I have done a, I've done a zoom play. <laughs> That was interesting. I had to like have like a background um, and, and treat that like the stage, and it was it was really interesting. Um, I did a Zoom film. Yeah. Um, so those were interesting experiences to see, you know, the how you could take performing into a virtual space, um, and I it was, it was strange, but it it felt like something I could learn from, obviously, because it's new. Um, but I, I do really like, you know, being on stage with people and being on set with people and being in a different space, having that whole world being created by like creative people and minds and, you know, everyone involved in the process of creating stories. Um, so that's something I really, really miss. And I'm like going crazy, um, trying to, to find some semblance of that, you know. Um, but I have a pretty active imagination and I identify as a crazy person. So I can, <laughs> I can create these things in my mind. Um, you know, I'm just like constantly off my meds. Um, <laughs> 
literally. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the space of acting is is changing, but I'm hoping that it gets back to a place where we can all experience film and theater again. You know, I miss it so much. It's such a big part of me. But, you know, I when I go out and I lead a march, I get to be somewhat of a character. So I use it, I use that space as a performance space too. You know, I'll get up there and I'll have the, the megaphone or the mic and I'll be screaming at people. <laughs> um, as if I were, you know, doing like Coriolanus or fucking whatever, Antigone, you know, like I, I will be doing my classic Greek and Shakespearean monologues, but up there in Black Lives Matter, you know? So that's been like my one performance outlet that I can be physically involved in, you know, which has been really, um, that's, that's been a learning process too. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just, God, it's just so, I miss it so much. I just, I do miss theater so much. I do miss film so much. And I, I want to go back to it. I'm just I'm like, what? I, I see people are working, but I'm like, where is this work happening? <laughs> and then I, and then I remember, oh, that's right. I'm black and I don't get cast for things now. <laughs> um, so I'm just like, <laughs> um, it's, it's, just so, it's okay. It's, the fight is still happening. We're going to get there soon. You know, we just got to keep, keep drilling it. Um, but yeah, it's just, hopefully we grow out of this experience um, and we get to a place where things are better, you know, and we can all be better and, and not in the same place and go back to normal. Uh, but we go to a place that is just so much more beneficial to us. You know, we grow to a new space that's so much better. So. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to end the interview than on that note. And I have to get out to these protests just to, to support you and also to see you in action. I would love to see the characters you bring out there. Everybody check out Jess's Instagram at JessXDavis. She dons wigs, makeup, thigh-high boots, wears her own designs. And, yes. and, and more than that, she's doing something that we can all take um, take to heart and, and follow her example. And that includes myself. So thank you so much, Jess. I'm thank you so much, Laura. Episode, but you stick around so we can chat. All right. Yay. Thank you everybody for listening. Check the show notes for all of the great stuff that we talked about with Jess today and tune in next week. <laughs>